Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Cape Sports Now. This is episode six. I'm Matt Goisman alongside Steve Jardarian, and happy Patriots Day. Yes, happy Patriots Day indeed. It's one of the best days of the year, and growing up, we always look forward to the uh, beginning of spring break or April vacation, whatever you call it. Absolutely. You know, the we I grew up in Brookline, and we've lived maybe about a mile from part of the route, and so every Patriots Day we would go, we would – bring a shopping bag full of like bottles of, of bottled water and we would hand it out to runners. So I've always loved the atmosphere on marathon day. Um, I think with this weather, it's probably going to be a little muted, but still, you know, a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, biggest shout out today goes to the volunteers out of there on the course, mm-hmm. you know, picking up after runners at all the cups and whatnot and, and the people setting up Porta Johns. We even saw a runner using a couple of those Porta Johns along the way. Probably. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But, and then, of course, the law enforcement, you know, keeping the course safe. You know, those guys go unnoticed a lot of the time. So kudos to everybody standing out there in the rain and uh, helping the Boston Marathon be as successful as it always is. Absolutely. Cape has lots and lots of uh, runners in the marathon this year. We'll be talking to a lot of them in the afternoon. And so if you want to find out how locals did, be sure to check out capecottimes.com slash sports or the sports section tomorrow morning. You know, one of our big stories was Jordan O'Day, a DY graduate, a really good cross-country and track runner who's in it this year. Um, But lots of other pretty cool stories about local runners will be coming. So definitely looking forward to that. Meanwhile, at the high school level, we've had two new football coaches announced in the last week, basically. Yeah, that was – it really came quickly. I mean, it was literally one right after the other. Thursday, Barnstable finally uh, naming a replacement for Chris Witten. That would be Roster Cola who, funny enough, actually coached at Monomoy, which is the yep. other coaching vacancy. We'll yep. get a little bit about that later. But saw a lot of people on social media chiming in on the new Barnstable coach. You know, he had a lot of experience. Come from Cheshire Academy. Cheshire Academy, Academy in Connecticut. In yeah. Connecticut. Has a real good reputation. He knows Cape football. Mm-hmm. He went to DY. Yep. Played for Paul Funk. So really going to be interesting to see how he steps in and fills a role of what is the biggest program, at least in terms of division-wise, on Cape. Yeah, and in terms of the size, the total number of players, Barnstable is still the biggest by far. Um, and that is what suggests he may have a slightly easier time than some of the other new coaches taking over their programs this year, just because there is always so many players coming in. Mm-hmm. And then the other side, we have uh, Monomoy's Larry Souza. So Monomoy's had a real, uh, I guess you'd call it a bit of a conundrum over the last few years. I mean, four coaches in four years, mm-hmm. and now this is going to be number five. Yep. In uh, Larry Souza, who is a teacher at Monomoy, something that athletic director Karen Gilmet really emphasized, wanted somebody who's in the school, someone who's really dedicated to the program and get to know these kids. Mm-hmm. Because for the longest time, it was somebody either from outside the school yep. or wasn't working there. So when you're with these kids every day, you can keep track of them a little bit better and you know, just make sure they're doing the right things that are needed to, to be yeah. done. I mean, we saw the same thing happen with Nossett last year where Mike Sherman – famously the head coach for the Green Bay Packers and mm-hmm. Texas A&M came in and coached the program for a couple of years, but he was not a full-time teacher. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, to step aside and the school had hired Bruce Strunk as a phys ed teacher and strength and conditioning teacher. And because Strunk had a background in football coaching, they thought he was a, a good successor to the program in part because he could be there with the students full-time. He could watch them during the school year and during the, you know, classroom hours, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And Sousa has some coaching experience, too. Uh, did some work over at Cape Tech with uh, Chris Leonard. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, he actually taught at Nossip, but was also an assistant coach co- coaching the offensive and defensive linemen for Monomoy. So 
it's going to be real interesting. You know, I'm always a big fan of offensive, defensive line coach. They always seem to bring the most energy. For and that's sure. what you need for those linemen, you know, in, in, in an offense in the past year that's run an option offense. Your offensive and defensive linemen are, are critical to, to your success. So I think that sort of definitely seems like a good fit for the job, and mm-hmm. um, we'll see how they do. So three out of four coaching vacancies that were that were currently announced have been filled. The lone one being Nantucket. It's yet to be filled after Brian Ryder stepped down in January. Ryder said he wanted to spend a little more time watching uh, his son play Corey, at William yeah. Mary. Yeah, a real good Division One athlete. So understandable there. But so that, that kind of leaves the question. So you know why don't we play a little game here? So both Sandwich and Barnstone went three and eight last year. Monomoy first winning record went seven and first four. First playoff appearance. Right. Yeah, I mean but best they, season. But ever. they lose twelve seniors. So. This game is, you know, which of these three coaches do you think will get the most wins in their first year? Mm-hmm. I, I got to go with Barnstable. I, I think just the fact that they have a quarterback, Peter Kuski, back, I, you know, and because of the just total numbers of people that come into that program each season, I think they will have the easiest time filling some of their losses at some of their other positions, like the skilled position spots, wide receiver, things like that. Right. Uh, yeah, my gut's saying Barnesville, too. You know, quarterback Matt Peter Kuski is back this year. You know, you saw him really sling the ball last year. Of mm-hmm. course, he had a lot of really high-profile targets, like Sam Rosen. Absolutely. going to graduate this year to throw to. And I mean, Rosen was actually a playmaker on both sides of the ball. Yep. You know, he still has a few guys to throw to, though. Guys like uh, tight end Colby Burke. He's going to be back. Brian Free is also going to be out of, coming out of the backfield. Both mm-hmm. guys were successful last year. And then Julio Mocha is coming back. Big physical presence up front. Could be good to the offensive line. So I do agree with you. However, you know, looking at Monomoy in past years, mm-hmm. they tend to have a bit of an easier schedule. You know, they play teams, you know, whether it's Atlantic Charter or even right. Vineyard once in a while. You know, some smaller schools, Cape Tech, for example. Yep. Teams that they've generally had success against. So I wouldn't be surprised if Sousa is able to lead them back. You know, they do lose 12 seniors, like I just said, but quarterback Isaac Hart is back. And like we were talking about before the show, they're a big option, kind of quarterback run offense. So having that quarterback back for another year is going to be quarterback back. I know. I just realized sure. that. <laughs> it's going to be big, you know, for them this year. What will be interesting, I think, is what happens when uh, Barnstable leaves the old Colony League. For a number of seasons, it's been talked about the old Colony League and the Atlantic Coast League dissolving right. the four ACL schools on the Cape, which are D.Y., Sandwich, Nauset, and Falmouth, forming a new higher division of the Cape and Islands League with Barnstable. Uh, Marshfield has had trouble finding a new conference, which has been what's held up this whole process. Mm. So... Barnstable, I believe, is going to be playing its normal OCL schedule, which is Bridgewater, Raynham, and Dartmouth again next year. But then if the year after that, this new Cape and Islands division finally forms, that will be a real interesting test because then all of a sudden Barnstable is going to be playing some very different programs. Yeah, but you have to look at it from a football perspective. Again, it has more to do with divisions now than leagues yeah. in a sport like that. They're still going to have to play Division One competition. and they That's are. still their biggest challenge is facing some of the big boys that sure. kind of rolled them over last year. But the way you get into the playoffs, the two easiest ways is usually right. to either win your division or in a lot of conferences, you, the second-place team also gets an automatic bid, too. Right. So that's you know, that's the easier way in, I think, than the whole power rankings and rating system that's very mathematical and complicated. I know, but it's still so difficult because even in a league oh, yeah. like that, you saw Barnstable last year. I mean, they, they matched with King Phillip, who was uh, you know, a state champion. So, Won like 30-something games in a row or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, they have the state's longest winning streak. So, I mean, even getting into the playoffs, I think they want more than that. I think they want For to sure. be competitive in the, in the postseason. 
So then they're not just playing a couple games yeah, yeah. that really don't mean much until they play Falmouth. Exactly. And I think <laughs> this is what comes down to, too, is you want a team that's going to be competitive against Falmouth. Falmouth has won three straight um, Selectman's Cups, so mm-hmm. I think Barnesville definitely wants to turn the tide on that. And I think they'd probably like to be able to compete a little bit more with DY, which is usually their season opener. Uh, and this year they'll be playing the def- a defending state champion. So, right. you know, this is a program that I think – wants to be on the same level as those other Cape programs that are basically their neighbors and was once. I mean, what's interesting with Barnstable and the what makes the Jacola story kind of interesting, I think, is the best period for Barnstable football was Spanky Demanche's run mm-hmm. where they won two state uh, Super Bowl titles. Demanche went on to be the AD at Monomoy where he hired Jacola as head coach. So, the guy Demanche hired is now taking over a program, trying to get the program back to a new program back to what it was when Demanche was running it. So there's this mm-hmm. very like cyclical, circular kind mm-hmm. of nature to all of this. Let's keep cut for it. <laughs> in a way, a quick note about sandwich. You know, Matt McLean coming in. He's an Abington guy. He actually played uh, football at Plymouth State with my cousin as well. Oh wow! So you know, small nice connection there. But you know, they have a lot of work to do. Obviously, the, the with the comp, the league is definitely uh, stacked against them a little right, bit. Yeah. I mean, you got three of the five teams who won state championships in the last what three, four years or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, Falmouth, Nostin, and Marshfield all winning. Or, excuse me, Falmouth, DY, and, and Marshfield. Marshfield all winning state championships. So uh, I'm not saying McLean, you know, can't turn that program around, but it's definitely going to take, I think, a little more time than, than the other two we just discussed. And he's also working with, uh, you know, sometimes you have this disadvantage with programs where the best, you don't have enough players to really get, like, amazing athletes in multiple sports. I think one of Nossett's problems has always been that a lot of their top athletes play soccer because of the strength of that soccer program mm-hmm. and the um, just the – the legacy of John McCauley who's run the program for so long. And I wonder if Sandwich doesn't have the same problem where the Sandwich soccer team has been pretty competitive, a pretty mm-hmm. consistent, at least playoff team. Uh, you know, they don't win the ACL because NASA does, but they're, that team has the aura of we will win games and the Sandwich team kind of doesn't right now. So mm-hmm. that's going to be his biggest challenge is, is convincing really high quality athletes to play football in the fall. Right. So that just about uh, wraps it up on football. So, I mean, again, we're going to have to wait for this summer to kind of see how all these leagues and conferences and whatnot shake out, mm-hmm. and we'll go from there. So in the meantime, why don't we talk about some sports actually in play? Yeah, exactly. Not today with the, with the weather, the, the gale warning all over the, across the Cape. So start with some boys' lacks here. You know, a huge win for the Falmouth boys last week, mm-hmm. beating Marshall. They rallied from down from 5-2 in the fourth quarter. Colin Almeida with a hat trick on the game-winning goal with about two minutes left. Just a really nice win for Falmouth. And, you know, Marshfield's been the top dog in the ACL, and already Nossett and Falmouth have been able to beat them. So just as we've talked about seemingly every week, this is a really interesting conference that can go either way. Sandwich is playing well, too. And mm-hmm. really, I think it's that four-team it's that four team race for the top spot. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I think the girls' season is also kind of wide open for, you know, Falmouth has had some big wins, but – also some struggles. Same could be said to Sandwich. I, I think both conferences, the boys and girls across for ACL, are going to be very interesting to watch down the next month right. to see who can really kind of emerge. Right. And what's really impressed me this year, looking at Sandwich real quickly, is Tim Ladder on faceoffs. I mean, you covered Nolan Elliott last year for Falmouth. You mm-hmm. just saw how dominating he was on yeah. faceoffs. Ladner's only a sophomore, but it reminds me a lot of Enigus. Just He just knows he's going to win the faceoff. I mean, mm-hmm. when you can come in knowing you have that much confidence – I mean, that plays not just a lot for your team, but it gets the other team going. 
we're more than likely going to be back on our heels after this draw. So that that plays a big impact, and you're seeing that this year. Cam Lopes, Mather Negron stepping in, scoring a lot of goals for Sandwich, and Peyton Goodwin obviously been solid sure. out back. You know, could arguably say they're the front runners, they're the team to beat right now. But again, that's so difficult because we're so early in the season, yeah. we played so many games. The question I, I kind of pose to you is: so, what was so good about Enigus was he was not. The acronym is FOGO, which stands for Face Off Get Off. Right. And it means a lot of times teams will just have a face-off guy yep. who wins it and then runs off the field and they get on another midfielder or somebody mm-hmm. who's more of an attacker. Enigus could score. I mean, he was right. a key part of the offense, so he could win the face-off and then stay on the field. Right. From what you've seen of Ladner, does he do that too, or is he more of the face-off, get-off kind of a player? It, they kind of mix in a little bit of both. I mean, against Barnstable, he picked one right up, went down and scored without any assists. So I mean, So, I mean, that, that's, that, that's a one-man effort right there. But a couple times they were running him off, so he could do a little bit of both. And I think it really all depends on the situation in the game and who they want, what kind of personnel they want mm-hmm. in in that certain situation. Um, whether maybe it's a man down or something like that, or maybe they're a man up and they want him on the field. Either way, he's a pretty balanced player. He mm-hmm. just happens to excel a lot on faceoffs. Sure. So this week, you know, it's a non-league matchup, but really interesting tomorrow. A lot of these games this coming week for school vacation week are going to be early. 11 a.m. starts most yep. of them. But Nasset at Bourne, I mean, these are two programs that have been really successful the last couple of years. I know Bourne has, has created a nice run for themselves. These are two teams that don't see each other very often, like opposite sides of the Cape. But, you know, both have multiple goal scorers, you know, defenses that aren't afraid to be aggressive and shut down the best team scorer. So, and we're talking a lot about Nassim and the ACL, but don't sleep on Bourne. No. Um, and, I, you know, we'll be curious to see how, you know, how where what kind of seeds they're able to get if they, if they make the playoffs. Um, but they're both historically strong programs. I wound up covering a lot of baseball and softball this past week, and – in both sports, I think the teams that are emerging as the front runners are pretty much the teams that we kind of expected. Mm-hmm. St. John Paul, baseball, they're undefeated. They are undefeated in part because guys like Devin Harrison are, you know, playing really well. We all figured Devin would be kind of the leader on that team, and he really was. You know, the key win for them so far has been their win over Monomoy, which was just a 2-1. Everything else has been kind of blowouts. Um, but he pitched a one-hitter. He drove in the winning run. Uh, so that's the team they're playing as they expected. Mashpee, you know, Falmouth is three and one. Kind of expected that they were very competitive in the ACL last year. They're always a good program. They're doing really well because Matt Lieb come in is pitching very well, and he is going to college to be a pitcher. And Gates Kelleher, who is going to college to play football, but is the son of the head coach. Mm-hmm. They're battery mates, pitcher catcher, and they're they're leading the team as we expected. I think the team that's maybe surprising a little bit is Sturgis West which has started the season three and one. Mm-hmm. They shocked Mashby uh, in their season opener, an eight, seven win that I covered. Not the most great weather for a baseball <laughs> game, you know, but that's the first time Sturgis West has ever beaten Mashby in program history. Mm-hmm. You know, Jonathan Cloutier is pitching really, really well. Jonathan Avis is playing well. Um, but, uh, you know, so that's kind of a team that be interesting to see if they can keep it up. Yeah, Mashpee's going to kind of have to hit its stride at a certain point. I mean, they were down 3 nothing in the first inning against Sturgis East the other day, mm-hmm. and they did rally back and win that game. But definitely there's some concerns there, I guess, getting some of that pitching down. And, you know, and it's been tough. To, and yep. You have to admit, it's been tough, tough conditions to hit in. And I think that's the product of some of these, like Harrison throwing a one-hitter. You know, 
he throws hard and he's pretty accurate. So, I mean, when he's on his game and it's cold out, you know, advantage pitcher all day long. Yeah, that's kind of an old adage in baseball is in cold weather, the warmest person on the field is the pitcher. Right. You know, I, I think with Mashpee, they have two established pitchers. You know, they have Zach Rod, you know, Landry, Zach Landry can pitch, Zach Rogers can throw a little, Michael Frazier. When they throw those guys, they're fine because those are veteran players in Landry and Frazier's case, those are college bound baseball players. When they have to go with other guys, that's when it's all a little bit more uncertain. It was, you know, against Sturgis East, that game where they fell behind, Freddie Hanna came in and he pitched well enough to kind of let them hang on, come back, win that game. I think 8-4 was the final. Mm. But Hanna struggled against Sturgis West and wound up giving up the lead mostly because of stuff like walks and wild pitches. So, Right. You know, when they go with their veterans, they're scoring 17 runs and win and run rolling opponents. When they go with their less tested players, that's when they're struggling a little bit. Right. And you also covered Barnstable's walk-off win over Bridgewater yeah. Rainham. Obviously big to win those league games because there aren't many for Barnstable, no, you know. No, there's not. And uh, just they had to fight back in that game and to, to get a walk-off hit. That seems like a team that's really turned things around nicely since losing their opener at Dartmouth. Hopefully. I mean, Dartmouth – Right now seems like the team to beat in the OCL. They mm -hmm. also beat Bridgewater Raynham, so they're two and zero, where everyone else is one and one. Unless some one of the other teams can come back and beat Dartmouth, Dartmouth now has a distinct edge to winning the OCL, which is a a guaranteed spot in the playoffs. So if Barnstable can't do that, and I think they're facing an uphill battle, even though it's only a week into the season, mm -hmm. they're going to have to win the majority of their games. You know, and that's going to be a challenge for them because of how young they are and how many new players they have. So another real thing that was a little bit of a surprise was Nosset starting off 0-2. You know, this is a team I thought had, you know, a lot of potential, and they still do. I mean, there's no saying they can't turn things around yeah, here. But, but I mean, I, right. But, you know, I really I really thought this was a team that was going to hit the ground running right away. And, um, you know, they lost to, to DY 5-4 on, you know, Friday. That was obviously an emotional game for DY's day mm -hmm. after, you know, Officer Sean Gann was shot and killed in the line of duty. Absolutely. Um, DY had the letters YPD on the back of the mound. So uh, a big emotional win for, for DY, for, for the community. And, you know, DY is a program that's really kind of turned things around the last few years. You know, they made the postseason, stuck into the postseason last year. Mm -hmm. And they gave Bourne right, right a run. Right at the end of the season, as I recall. Right, and they gave Bourne a run for their money in the first round. They just ended up falling a run short in that one. But, you know, good good to see that program basically turning a corner there and, you know, showing that they're a team to belong in the ACL. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, this week, uh, interesting, Barnstable's at Wellesley at 11 a.m. Thursday. That's a rematch of last year's sectional quarterfinals, yep. Division One, where Wellesley was a 5-1 winner in Barnstable. So, you know, new team, new, new players and stuff like that, but certainly some of the players on last year's team are forgetting. They want to get a little bit of revenge on that same team. And it's interesting this year, you know, with, with vacation week going on pretty much across the state, you see some Western Mass teams coming yep. out. Pittsfield's going to be at Fallon's at 3 p.m. Friday, and then Saturday they're going to go play Barnstable at 1, I believe. Mm -hmm. So cool to see some potential, hey, if we got to the state tournament, maybe we end up running into this team. You never yeah, know. Yeah, if you could make the state semifinals or state finals. I, I think it's more so for the Western Mass teams. They want to come down here for the beach, but uh, it doesn't look like, that beach is, <laughs> doesn't look like it's going to be beach weather this weekend. So uh, I guess just enjoy the uh, maybe some seafood or something yeah, like that. Seafood, or, I don't know. Or maybe the trees will bloom if you get a little <laughs> sunshine. Lord knows the, the soil's wet enough yeah. that the plant should be able to grow. Um, Girls Lax, what do you got? So, yeah, good showing by Bourne last week. You know, they started the week losing 9-8 in uh, overtime to Hull, but, you know, they bounced back with a 9-7 win over Mashby, a team that, you know, has really 
it has two of some of the best players, you know, on the Cape, and obviously Tara Palermo and, you know, Charlotte Hendricks. But mm-hmm. Aaron Riley, three goals in that game. Carter the Cash, really good hockey player, two goals and an assist. You know, big contributions in that one. And then also found with a 13-9 winner over Marshfield with six goals from Quinn O'Rourke. Also earlier in the week, Rachel Curtis reached 100 varsity goals, really cool milestone, and mm-hmm. a 16-5 to win over Nossett. So uh, Falmouth still unbeaten, I believe, and uh, definitely doing all the right things. For sure. Softball, so, uh, just so Can I actually interrupt real quickly? Sorry. Yes. We just, this, week, <laughs> this week, actually, there's this one interesting matchup I just wanted to talk about. Tomorrow, 3.30, Mashpee is going to be at Falmouth Academy, and I think that's going to be a real interesting yeah. matchup because you see two teams that are very similar, right? Mm-hmm. they got your, you got your high scorer, your primary player, but then you also have a really good secondary player. With the two Mashpee players we just talked about, and then on the other side, you have Jane Early, obviously. And Ainsley. Profile on her, and then Ainsley yep. Ramsey. You know, that good secondary score. So I'm really interested to see how these two teams are going to match up against each other. They both have really young defenses. So if I had to put any money on it, I'd bet a high-scoring game. I'd bet the over. <laughs> I probably. Um, I think probably just from an experience standpoint, I would still probably give the edge to Falmouth Academy. Just right. the, you know, Ramsey and Early are both Lachsachusetts players. And we so, you know, they're both – well, I mean, Tara Palermo is going to St. Leo, which is D2, and Early could have gone D1 and decided to go D3. Right. We, we've we talked about this story. We'll say enough. Early has D1 potential. How about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and you you profiled her. I mean, did you learn anything new just from talking to her? What was kind of the – what was it like talking to her now? Because we've talked to her so many times when it was looking like she was going to BC and taking that big sure. step. Well, I didn't know that she was a competitive gymnast for most of her childhood. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool to learn. Uh, and – she is really into like environmental science and stuff like that, which uh, is cool. Right. Um, so now we can move to softball. <laughs> I shouldn't have cut you off. That's all right. I, softball. I think the teams that are emerging as the te- as the real teams to beat are the ones we expected. Monomoy and Nantucket are both four and D Y is three and one. You know, Monomoy and Nantucket. I think the Cape and Islands League is going to come down to them. I don't see anybody else really competing with them, and honestly, I think they might split. Uh, you know, on Monomoy's side, Molly Cherist is doing what we expected her to do. She struck out 12 in her opener. She struck out 12 against Sturgis East. Uh, the balance of that team is really starting to impress me, though. Um, you got Maddie Crosser, who can bunt four times for singles, which I've never seen before in a game. <laughs> and then you have Emma Thatcher, who has homered in two different games. You've had other players uh, like Caroline uh, Giovanni. Um, who can homer. This is a team with power pitching, pretty good defense, and can hit for contact. That is a very hard, uh, you know, it's hard to beat teams like that. But Nantucket is also pretty good. You know, Marina Caspi and Madeline Lamb are pitching really well, uh, and you have a lot of offense coming out of those that team too. They are scoring in the double digits regularly. Mm-hmm. So when those teams match, it'll be interesting to see probably short, uh, you probably will expect lower scoring games, like 2-1, 3-1, something like that. Right, but I mean, circuit for tomorrow because DY at Monomoy is probably going to be one of the best games. And I think arguably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Nantucket can make a good case. I still think these are the two best teams on the Cape for softball. Just historically, I mean, you looked at last year's first matchup. It was a one nothing game with mm-hmm. a run scored, a DY winning one nothing in the um, in the seventh inning. They DY got his lone run, and that's what it's going to come down to most likely is a 2-1, 3-2 game, unless, you know, Monomoy can really get their bats going against whoever um, D.Y. sends to the mound, which is likely either going to be Abby Hicks or Matty Madero. Yeah. So we'll see how those two do in that situation. 
Um, why don't we fit in some uh, marathon talk while we wrap up the show sure. here? Um, so some spoilers in case you're recording the race. We have, <laughs> I have some spoilers. If you're recording, you don't know, turn off your sound or whatever you want to do. Right. Um, Tatiana McFadden, you know, winning her fifth Boston Marathon. We cover her a lot when she comes to Falmouth Road Race. Mm -hmm. So she's um, that was her fifth title in the Women's Wheelchair Division, unofficial time, two hours, four minutes, 39 seconds. Actually the slowest time in 30 years. For that race, but in these conditions, that's pretty. Yeah, I, I think you gotta be a little bit careful with uh, weather like this when you're on one of those recumbent right. bikes. But McFadden, you know, real interesting. All right, sorry about that. A bit of technical difficulty. We're only six episodes old. If we were kids, we would be in kindergarten. We're still figuring some of this out. So we we're talking about the marathon. Thought we'd wrap it up with that, and then uh, and then let everybody go enjoy this wonderful Patriots Day weather. Right. I guess it must have been the uh, in-house cat chewing on the court or something. Right. Who knows? Uh, and, just blame it on the rain. Yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway, so just again, just some, to reset the table here. So we do have the big winners in already. So Tatiana McFadden, three-time Falmouth Road Race champion, wins her fifth women's wheelchair Boston Marathon title. You know, she's won the Grand Slam of shorts. You know, winning Boston, New York, Chicago. Yep. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the fourth Marcus one. London. London, yes. Thank you. So her time was 2:04:39. was the slowest time in 30 years. However, with the weather, that's perfectly understandable. Out. But, you know, really impressive effort uh, from her. You know, Marcel Hoog, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, from Switzerland wins a men's wheelchair in 141.49. But I think the big headline today is going to be De uh, Desiree Linden, a 34-year-old California, becomes the first women's Boston Marathon champion since 1985. She crossed in 239.54 also. A pretty slow time, but with conditions, understandable. Uh, Lisa Larson um, Rainsberger was a previous American champ. So, and just to see an American win that is obviously a big sense of pride there. Mm -hmm. And we saw what's her name, Shalane Flanagan, win the New York City Marathon last year, last fall. Just, you know, cool to see American women starting to really shine on that, on yeah. that top stage. I think we started to see a little of it during the Rio Olympics. I mean, we mm -hmm. had, even on the men's side, we had much more success at the, you know, at the longer distances, even, you know, just like the 1500s, things like that the steeplechase, the marathon. So, you know, maybe we're finally starting to see the resurgence of American distance runners. And Flanagan, who's from Marblehead, so it's cool to see a Massachusetts person. She actually had a funny moment. We uh, referenced it earlier in the show. She was actually the person who had to pull over in the middle of the course to one of the Porta Johns on the side. <laughs> I guess, hey, you know what, when nature calls, and even yeah. if it's in the middle of one of the biggest races of the year. I've run marathons, or, well, I, excuse me. I've run, I've run a marathon, I've run right. one, <laughs> If you got to use the bathroom, that is all you think about if yeah. you're like on mile 20, so you just go use it because otherwise it will throw off your entire game. Right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this name a little bit, but Japan's Yuki Kawawachi wins a men's marathon, unofficial time 2.15.54, which is still pretty much cruising in, in really terrible conditions, you know. As we both run before, as we know, as loud as it is outside, your socks get wet and stuff like that. I still think the runners will take this to an 80 to 90 degree day where oh, I think so. you risk heat stroke and you're going to see a lot more casualties. But we mentioned the volunteers out there. And I'm sure they're checking people for hypothermia. Yeah, that's Making sure risk. people stay warm. They have those space blankets at the end for every finisher. So mm -hmm. I think people are going to be okay. And generally, once you get moving after a few miles, the cold becomes less of a factor. Yeah. You know, it, it's really... I think right towards the end is when it really starts to right. get to you, in part because you're moving slower, so you're generating less right. body heat. You've also probably consumed a lot of the calories and fuel in your body, so you can't naturally replenish it. And then when you finish, that's when you got to get warm and get dry 
pretty quickly. You get one of those big packs, though. And I go, what, are, what do you call this? One of those big runner's packs. I feel like you can spread the heat around a little bit easier. So <laughs> there's your advice. Run in a big pack if you're cold out there. But right. just, you know, again, though, this is just a tradition that we grew up with. You know, running from Hopkinton, I grew up a couple or a couple minutes west of Hopkinton, where the race begins, all the way to Boylston Street in Boston. Just absolutely one of the best days of the year. You know, I've been to the Red Sox morning game mm -hmm. a handful of times, and and though it's postponed today, unfortunately, it's actually the first time since 1984. Is that a sign of the apocalypse? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of references to the 80s. I mean, yeah, yeah, the yeah, first yeah. American winner since the 80s. I something about the men's winner also right. has something to do with the 80s. I think first Japanese winner since right. like 80. Seven or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes I think Boston sports fans get a little bit of a, a rep for negativity, for defensiveness. Right. What I love about Patriots Day is that it is a generally extremely positive atmosphere. Everyone's in a good mood, maybe not on a day like this, but when the weather's mm -hmm. nice, everyone is in a good mood. Everybody's relaxing on the sidelines. Everyone's cheering, you know, and they're cheering for everybody, not just the, the elite runners who are done in two and a half hours. They're cheering for the guy who is – trudging along at a five-hour pace. You right, know? in a tuxedo or running backwards right, or something or like that. dressed up like a cheeseburger or something like that. <laughs> no, no, but absolutely. And it's a Massachusetts. I mean, it's our holiday. Yeah. It's our state's holiday, and it, there's really just nothing just nothing like that, at least that I've seen. So, I mean, just such a unique tradition. You know, more often than not, the Sox end up winning the game that day. Right. Um, just a quick side note, they actually didn't play in 95 because of the strike, but it's the first time it's been postponed to weather on sure. Patriots Day. So. You know, and I was too young at the time to, to indulge in a hot dog and a beer at 11 a.m., but <laughs> I'm sure for the people who are legal enough to, to do both of those things, um, that was a pretty cool thing. So, And then after the game, of course, you get to see the runners kind of finishing up. Absolutely. They usually have, what, about two, two and a half miles, I think, probably around two Probably two miles, yeah. From Fenway Park. So, you know, I remember growing up watching um, Robert Cherry seemingly win every year. It was 03, 06, and mm -hmm. 08, just really dominating the field in the, in the early 2000s. And same for Ernst Van Dyke in the men's wheelchair. Yep. He won it from 2001 to 2006, from 08 to 2010, and then once again in 2014. So, so he's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but these are names you remember growing up just because the race is so special. Like for any of those races, I couldn't tell you who won every year. It's yep. just you just remember these from watching it on TV every year. And Absolutely. it's just really cool. And really this year seeing people I know run it, you know, someone who grew up across the street from me is in the race this year, a former college teammate of mine. Mm -hmm. Other people I've gotten to know in the running community are in there. So I wish them the best of luck. Hopefully should be finishing up, if not already finished by now. Um, for me, it's the yeah. fun of like – so an easy way for reporters to find local runners is to use social media. Right. And some, a lot of the names I come across are new, but a good dozen or so of them, I go through my message and I'm like, I messaged this person last year. Right. I have this person's phone number right. already. So starting to, I'm starting to learn who the real competitive distance runners right. are on the Cape and see them do it year after year after year. And that's cool. And we talk about covering these road race events, especially down here. They really are a lot of fun because when it comes to going to a big sporting event, say to you, the covering state champion, you know, you talk to people, People are generally there for the same reason. Right. You go cover a race. There's people there for a whole ton of different reasons. Mm -hmm. It creates a you know great. We do notebooks usually every time for whether it's fun with road race yep. or the Hyannis Marathon, and it's just amazing to find what brings different people out to run the same event, and it's really inspiring in a way just to see what what drag people out to be active and, mm -hmm. and participate in something big like this i think with most sports the sole goal is to win or to lose but with running especially any kind of distance running even just like a 5k right. uh 
the just the personal accomplishment of finishing it is what drives most of the people who do it. You know, no, there's only like ten people who are really in contention to win the Boston Marathon. Right. But there's thousands who do it just to say that they did it, just to see if they can yeah. finish it. Right. You know, winning is it was defined a lot differently across the spectrum. I right. think is what you're trying to say. Exactly. So just one last note here. So a DY grad Kendra Mailer is supposed to throw out the first pitch to hit Fenway again. Unfortunately, that game was postponed to May 17th. Mm -hmm. I did talk to somebody from the Red Sox, so she is going to get another chance to throw out the first pitch. A little background on that story in case you didn't uh, catch it in Sunday's paper. So her friend Maggie Reamer from Brookline, they My both – it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Connection there. Um, they both grew up going to Camp Jabberwocky. It's a camp for adults with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, Kendra uh, has an intellectual disability. And um, Maggie was a camp counselor there. And they've been going back for 11 years now. This summer is going to be their 12th year wow. going to this camp on Martha's Jr. It's the longest-running overnight camp for adults with disability. Cool. So, so what happened is Maggie saw the contest on Instagram and what they had to do was show a picture that demonstrated what their community support is. And it was a picture of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And she basically said, you know, we've been going to this camp for so long. We're big Red Sox fans. We love the opportunity to throw out the first pitch, which was a surprise. And sure enough, they were picked and Kendra's going to get to throw out her first pitch. She said she's not nervous. She's a big uh, fist bump person. She loves <laughs> Mookie bets. So, to have to wait another month, but I'll be really excited to see her throw out a first pitch. Cool. Definitely a dream we all had growing up, oh, I'm sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think that just about wraps it up. Thanks for being patient, for tuning back in. And you can catch us again on our Facebook page, or the Cape Cod Times Facebook page. You can also go to capecodtimes.com slash now, And you can follow us on Twitter. My name is Steve Derdarian. I'm on Twitter at Steve underscore Derdarian. That's D-E-R-D-E-R-I-A-N. And I'm Matt Goisman, CCT. That's M-A-T-T-G-O-I-S-M-A-N, CCT, as in Cape Cod Times. We'll be back for Episode 7 next week. See ya.